The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're beginning the last half of the book. There's four chapters. We've looked at the first two. The third and fourth chapters uh, really have the second major theme of the book. Paul is writing, it's actually a letter that he's writing to the church at Philippi. And in the first two chapters, he talked about our responsibility to live worthy of the gospel. And if you, in fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, that is, there's unity and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is what we've been called to, is to live worthy of the gospel as a people, individually and as a people, as a as a family, the family of God. Now we begin chapter three, and he comes to the second major uh, thing that he wants to get across to them about living under the, the authority of Christ, living the gospel out in their city, in their situation. We talked a little bit about Philippi. It was a, uh, it was a special city. Everybody who was a citizen of Philippi was a citizen, a full citizen of Rome. And uh, that was unusual. Most people in the Roman Empire, over 50% of the people in the Roman Empire at this time were servants or slaves. They didn't have freedom. They weren't free citizens. Uh, But all those who lived at Philippi, if they were citizens of Philippi, they were free citizens. And so it was here that Paul established an outpost of the kingdom of God right in the midst of the Roman Empire. And uh, in, in 300 short years, the Roman Empire became a Christian empire by decree now that that didn't do that wasn't all good because it was decreed by the ruler at that time uh, Constantine and it produced what what has come to be known as Christendom which is when the church takes over the governments and I want to tell you that's not a good idea Uh, we're very it's very clear in the New Testament that we are we are to have a a relationship with a government that has been placed over us because it's a, it's a gift of God, and we are not to be the government. And I certainly don't want to be a governor or a, a government official of any kind. Uh, the responsibility of pastors is real simple. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says that what we're supposed to do is equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, what that means is we're to teach and preach and, and live and and talk to people in such a way that they would come to understand who they are in Christ and what is the significance of ministry. This past week, of course, as Tony was saying, we had a VBS here. That's Christianese for Vacation Bible School. And over half the kids that were here were not from our church. And so it was an opportunity to expose them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are certainly grateful for that. Uh, I'm so grateful for all the people that were involved. I gotta tell you, that's a, hard, um, that's a hard calling to work a vacation Bible school this time of the year. I don't know why they never have this in the spring when it's still cool. But um, it was tough. It was hot. And, you know, little children aren't always super obedient to everything that the people tell them to do. And so it was a challenge. I, I only know that because my wife came home every day. And I saw her, I saw, <laughs> I saw the effects of that day. 
and uh, she really slept well at night. It was amazing. Um, but I'm really grateful for what took place. It's, it is a, a truly a, a, a picture of what the New Testament teaches about the fact that what happens to us when we come to be followers of Christ, believers in Jesus Christ, that he fills our hearts with joy in Christ, and we actually want to talk to people about Christ. And so it was a great opportunity for so many. I want us to turn to Philippians 3, and we're going to see how to guard the joy that we receive from the gospel. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but back in, in fact, I'm going to have you turn back there to Isaiah 52, just a second. Uh, In Isaiah 52, I want to tell you the context in which these words are given. In fact, if you notice in verse 7, he says strange things. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now, what he's talking about, this was a well-known saying, and he's talking about a runner who comes from the battle to the city to let them know how the battle is going. And they could tell by his stride whether it was good news or bad news. And so what's happening here is Israel's going back to their nation. They've been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And and this is a picture of them going back home to Jerusalem where the wall's been torn down. The temple's been torn down, but they're going back to rebuild. And this is what he's talking about when he says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Get that? Good news of happiness. In other words, the good news that he brings should produce joy in the heart. Now, this isn't talking about the, just the, the uh, in the specific context, it's talking about the good news that came to Israel that they were going home, that it, Judah was going home. They were going back to the land. God was delivering them. And he says in the last two lines there, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, nobody in the world thought that their God was reigning during those 70 years while they were in captivity. It looked like their God had fallen on his face, and they had been taken into captivity, and they were captives in Babylon. But now they're going home. And so the good news comes to them. No, God is not dead. God is very much alive. What God often does in our lives, not only in the life of Israel, but in our lives, he allows us to go through great difficulties so we come to understand that the greatest treasure that we have is Jesus Christ and the Father through him and the Spirit. That's the greatest treasure we have. There is nothing in life like the treasure of Christ. Someone has said that Jesus is the gospel, and that's true. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. Um, When we talk about joy, the joy of, uh, of believing the gospel, what we're talking about is when you hear the good news, The gospel, and that's what gospel means, it means good news. What you're hearing is the good news about Jesus Christ so that you would come to believe on Jesus Christ, that you would come to put your trust in him. And the promise is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That word saved is a huge word, and it means not only are you going to be saved from danger, but you're going to be made whole and complete. We're going to experience what we were created for being reconciled to God because we were made for God. We were made to have a relationship with God. He actually appointed, when you go back to the context in in the creation account, he actually told Adam that he was to rule over God's creation. That was his job. He was to be the head of the kingdom of God on the earth after God had created it. But he failed miserably. And we have that failure recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. And right in the midst of that fall, 
when God confronts them about their sin, at the same time, he gives them the promise of a coming redeemer, the last Adam. The first Adam failed, but the last Adam has succeeded, and we have come to believe on him. The good news came to us, and we believed. I want you to listen to something. I used to hear a guy, uh, Jack Miller, uh, uh, read it. I actually listened to some of his teaching and then also reading his books. He would always say Galatians 4.15, and this is what he would translate it. What happened to all your joy? Saying to the, the Galatians. What happened with the Galatians was they had received the gospel, and they were full of joy when Paul brought it to them. He was there, probably had malaria or something like that. He was sick, and his, evidently his eyes were affected by it. And notice what he says. This is a translation. The first time I found this same expression in another translation, it's called the voice translation by Thomas Nelson. It was done in 2012. But this is how they interpret this passage. What, happened, what has happened to your joy and blessing? I tell you, the place was so thick with love when I came the first time, he's talking about, that if it were possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and handed them to me. And now, do I stand as your enemy because I tried to bless you with the truth? Because they're angry at him, because he has confronted them about abandoning the gospel. He says, I tell you that what these false brothers, these Judaizers, and we'll talk about that in a second, who are trying to get them to add something to the good news other than Christ, Christ plus anything else. He says, I tell you what these brothers and sisters are counting on. They are counting on your attention. They are ravenous for it. They want you to exalt them. They are not acting honorably or in your best interest. They want to keep you away from the good news, the gospel that we proclaim to you so that they can have all, all of you to themselves. And what he's talking about is the same thing Paul is, is and this is Paul, but what Paul is talking about over in, in, uh, in Philippians, he's talking about the same thing. So let's, let me read these first four verses to you. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, finally, brethren, now, have you ever heard preachers preach that could never land the, the airplane? They just kept on preaching. They would say, now let me in conclusion, and they would give you about 10 conclusions. You ever have one of those? I've never done that, have I? No, I don't think I've done that. But anyway, that's not what's going on here. When he says finally, it just means this is what remains. This is the other half of the communication I want to give to you. And so he says, finally, my brethren, this is an important message. Rejoice in the Lord. That means express your joy in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It isn't troubling for him to repeat himself and tell them the same things again. And it is a safeguard for you. That is, there's a danger lurking, and I want you to be safe from it. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Quite literally, the mutilation. I'll explain what he's talking about. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, but no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to have put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, there's, there's things about him that he could outdo these Judaizers who were trying to tell Christian people, these Christian Gentiles, that they should become Jewish in order to really be accepted with God. Now, today, we have the same thing going on. It's shaped slightly differently, but it's the same thing. 
It's messages that are, that are meant to tell you that believing on Jesus is not enough. Trusting Christ, receiving Christ is not enough. All of you are familiar with John 1 when he says, he came into his own creation and his own people, that is the Jews, did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe on his name. Now that passage, what it does for you, it tells you what believing in Christ means. It means receiving him. It doesn't just mean believing the facts are true. It means you receive him by faith. You welcome him. You believe upon him as the Savior. You rest completely in his ability to save you. So the great treasure that the church has is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And if you take away the the gospel, if you distort the gospel, what you will do is you will kill the joy of believers. There is nothing more pathetic than going in amongst a bunch of Christians in a local church or somewhere, and they're having no joy. There's something totally wrong with that, isn't there? I don't know if you've ever gone to a church where it looked, it's felt like a funeral. It felt like nobody, nobody there had any joy. They didn't show it on their faces. They didn't show it in the way they talked to each other. That's a shame because the gospel is meant to produce joy in our hearts, That is, that's the only way you can tell if a person's truly believed the gospel. Has it produced joy in their hearts? The greatest joy in all of life. And so the great treasure that we have is the gospel. The great responsibility we have is guarding the gospel. And here's, listen to this. This is uh, 2 Timothy 1.14, last book Paul wrote. And he says to Timothy, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which was entrusted to you. And in context, he's talking about the gospel. It's the treasure that we've been given. And we are to protect it. We are to guard it. All that means is we don't let it be corrupted. We continue to believe what the Bible says the gospel is. By the way, I'll do this again. It doesn't trouble me to say the same thing over again. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to show you the place in the Bible that you can always go to, and you can find the gospel given in its most simple form. This is what Paul writes. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Gospel means good news. And there's actually implied in the, in the word gospel, euangelio, There's actually implied in it the idea that it's going to produce joy in you when you hear it. Have you ever gotten any good news this past month or two? Ever get some good news? It's wonderful, isn't it? Good news. And so he says, I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, in other words, if you've actually received it and believed it, you are saved by it, unless you have believed in vain. That is, without purpose, in vain. You didn't believe what the gospel actually says. And then he goes on to give you the gospel. He says, for I delivered you of first importance. You should underline this in your Bible or put a little check mark next to it or something. For I delivered to you as the fir- of first importance What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. Now, let me just explain to you that he he died according to the Scriptures because the Old Testament prophesied that he was going to die. And that prophecy, that string of prophecy began in Genesis 3.15, in the third chapter of the Bible. 
you have the good news given. It's sometimes called the proto-gospel in the sense that it's the first time that it's mentioned because the fall has just happened and men need to be saved and reconciled to God. We're going to go to the Lord's table in a little while, and that is a table of reconciliation. It's a table that represents the fact that we have been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. The barrier between us has been removed, and we've been brought as close as, we, as God can get us. See, God is the, is the God who draws near his people. He always does. He draws near his people. The great treasure we have is the gospel because it is, Christ, it is Christ, and it is the Father, and it's the Holy Spirit who is the real treasure to the believer and to Christianity. This is, this is all we need. We don't need anything else. This is, this is our basic need. We need Christ because through Christ we know the Father and we experience the Spirit. And so he says, I deliver to you of first importance that he died according to the Scriptures. He died for our sins. Then secondly, he says, then he was buried. Now, this isn't, this isn't, he's not quoting Scripture here. He's saying he was buried because that proved he was really dead. You are aware that we only bury dead people, right? Jesus was buried because he had died. He really died on the cross. There was a thing that went through the air some years ago called the swoon theory that said that Jesus just passed out and they put him in a tomb. But he really, he didn't, wasn't raised from the dead. He just, he just woke up and everything was normal. But he says, and he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The Old Testament, in fact, the, ver- the chapter after you heard this morning, Isaiah 53, tells us that Christ will be raised from the dead, that the Messiah will be raised from the dead. And he says, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 uh, verses says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the 12, all of his followers, his disciples, he appeared to them. They saw him physically raised from the dead. And he says, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Several years after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul. Remember, where was he, where was he going? He was going to Damascus because he wanted to he wanted to arrest some Christians. He was going there because he hated Christ. He hated Jesus claiming to be Christ. Even though he had been executed, he hated his followers. And so he was trying to stamp out Christianity. And on the road, the living, resurrected Christ appeared to him. And in, as a result of that, Paul came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was saved. And he became a chief leader in the early church. He took the gospel westward, and he took it further than anybody else did. He took the gospel as far as he could go because he had come to be a, belie- he had came to, come to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I was, like a, I was like one born out of due season. I rejected him at first. I persecuted Christian. That's why he calls himself the chief of sinners because he was totally against Christ and his people. But then he saw Christ. Now, there's a sense in which that's what happened to us. Remember in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, The God who said, let light shine in darkness, is the one who caused the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in our hearts. 
We didn't see him physically, but the eyes of our heart was opened, and we saw the glory of God in the person of Christ, and we believed. This is why in in Ephesians 2, the verse that you memorize, remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, when it says, um, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. He's saying, "You, you didn't do that yourself, being saved by grace through faith. That was God's doing. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works, not because you've done something to deserve salvation, so that no one could boast. No one can boast among Christians. We can boast in Christ. We can exult in Christ. And we exult in sufferings that God has proven himself to be a faithful father to us through our sufferings. But you can't boast in your works. So he says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he says, because we are his handiwork. We're his workmanship. I've told you before, that word there uh, that's translated workmanship is the Greek word poema, from which we get our word poem. It's a work of art. In one sense, you're a work of art. That God created you. And he says, uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Anybody know what for what? What did he say? For good works. In other words, good works are not the basis of your salvation, but they are the clear evidence of it. That you walk in obedience to Christ. So it's, it's the results, not the cause. The cause is the work of Christ. The effect of the work of Christ being worked in our lives is that we work in obedience to him. He is everything to us. He's the most treasured possession we have is our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul doesn't want them to lose. That's why he's writing to the Philippians. He's afraid that they're going to be affected by these false teachers that are referred to as as Judaizers. We'll talk about that in a second when it, when it talks about who they are and what, what he calls them. First of all, we have to recognize the danger. When he says, finally, my brethren, like I say, he's not ending the sermon. He's simply saying, the last thing I want to tell you, the first thing I told you was live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. But the last thing I want to tell you is this, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. You know what rejoice means? It means express your joy. If you, if you would have come on Friday night, which most of you didn't, but if you could have come on Friday night, you would have seen a bunch of kids uh, acting as though they were really joyful. And that's what rejoice means. Rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And the reason we are to rejoice is because he is going to tell us that this is the only legitimate way to respond to the gospel that we have received as a gift. Now, I, need to, I want to make it clear that when, we're not talking about you just believing some facts and that would, that's how you get saved. We're saying that these facts point to a person and it's this person who saves you. Do you, you, you all know probably because you've been Christians for a while that you've met people who believe that the facts of the gospel are true but they've never themselves trusted, entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ. They haven't entrusted themselves. 
But they would, I had a cousin who would fight you over whether the gospel was true, but he wasn't a believer. He had never received Christ. He did, finally. But what you have done, the one who saved you, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why you believed upon him. You received him. You put your trust in him as your savior. And he saved you. And so what Paul is saying here is, uh, I want you to rejoice because you have received the gospel. And I want you to hold on to the gospel in such a way that it always produces joy in your heart. You need to ask yourself that. Does the gospel always produce joy in your heart? Does, is it a source of joy when you are downcast, when things aren't going the way you want them to go? Do you ever just turn to the gospel and say, thank you, Father, for sending your son to rescue me and bring me into relationship with you? I was so lost. I was so far from you. But you sent your son, and I am so grateful. And it's the reason I have joy. I can have joy because what Christ has done when we look at ourselves, it can be really disappointing, can it? But when we look to Christ, we would look to the one that the gospel told us about. It was announced to us. And that's why he says that expression, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, is the idea of this messenger coming and bringing good news to them. And in this case, they were headed back to Jerusalem, and the messenger said, our God reigns. And you've been set free, and you're going back to the land that was given to you. With us, we believe the gospel. Somebody brought the good news to us, and we believed it, that Jesus died for our sins. That is, his death, in some glorious way, has set us free from this alienation that we were living in and experiencing under under, in this condition of being far from God and experiencing none of his blessings, having no awareness of who he is. And then we heard God's testimony about his son. You remember in the Gospels, they hear the voice of God speak from heaven. When Jesus at his baptism, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When on the Mount of Transfiguration, when his disciples saw Jesus transfigured right before their eyes, the Father speaks from heaven and said, and well, what happened was Peter said, we need to build three tabernacles here, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And God interrupts him and corrects him. He said, oh, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He's the only Savior. And he is the perfect Savior. And it's because we have come to trust in him, we received him by faith, that we experience this joyful experience of being made right with God. And so the good news that's been brought to us is to, a natural response is to fill our hearts with joy. Most of you are aware of, uh, at least vaguely, because I've repeated it so many times, but First Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter said to these people who were running from persecution, he says, even though you haven't seen him, like me, Paul had, Peter had seen him, but they hadn't. He said, even though you've never seen him, you love him. And even though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice, rejoice. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You can't say it any bigger than that, can you? 
that the, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is called a gospel. It's called good news because it brings great joy to the heart of those who hear it. And the way you hear it is God opens your eyes and your ears and you hear the truth of the gospel and you embrace Jesus Christ by faith and that produces great joy. And so Paul is telling them and he told, he told Timothy in his last book, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to us. What's the treasure that's been entrusted to you? Are you a Christian? You've had the, you have had the treasure entrusted to you. You might think, oh, no, that's for other people. No, it's not. It's for every believer. We've been entrusted with this treasure. And the treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are an official witness of Jesus Christ. And you may think, yeah, but I don't know how. I, I don't know how to tell people about Christ. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. All you got to do is just start thinking about, how did I receive Christ? What happened in my life? When did I first hear the gospel? And what was the gospel? I first heard the gospel when I was about, my, it's my earliest memory, I was about four years old. My mom shared the gospel with me. I remember it. I remember that she told me that Jesus Christ came into the world and he died for me so that I could have my sins forgiven and be reconciled to God. Now, the way that works out is Christ has come to undo what Satan had done as the head of the race. Now Jesus is the head of his people. Just as in Adam all sinned, in Christ all are made alive. He's forgiven us and he's made us alive. And now we are official witnesses, official witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's true. And you know, you can, there's plenty of help if you think that you're not capable of sharing the gospel. There's a little, there's a little program you can get for your iPhone or your Android. Is that what they call them? Androids? Ad noise, Android? Something like that. You can get a little program called 321 if you look for it. And it's just a little app that presents the gospel in a very clear and understandable way. And what you need to do is, in fact, there's another book. It's 100 verses from the New Testament that declares that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. 100 verses. Now, you, what you could do is you could start memorizing those 100 verses. And once you get to memorize them, memorize them in another language, you know, Spanish or something, so that you have it ready at hand to tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what's going to happen? What's going to happen is you're going to see people rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Those who believe it, those who receive it, they're going to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's a joyful thing to receive Christ as your Savior. It puts a smile on your face, and it puts joy in your heart. You say, well, I've never experienced that. Well, you need Christ. You need Christ. You need to actually, uh, let, me, let me quote uh, Noelle uh, Peterson. She said, I don't remember when I didn't know that Jesus came and died for our sins. But there was a time when I began to understand it. And she says to me, you know, there's a difference between knowing something and understanding it. That's called wisdom. 
In fact, um, I just read this guy. He said, you know, what we need to do in today's world is we need to, we need to start practicing uh, our mentorship. R stands for reverse. For example, if you wanted to learn how to play a video game, I don't know the names of any of them, but if you wanted to learn how to play a video game, who would you get to show you? Don't go to anybody with gray hair. Go to a five, six, seven-year-old and let them mentor you, and they'll show you how. Even guys in their 30s are too slow now to really do well at those games. It's these little bitty kids. They're amazing. And uh, that's, that's what we should do about the gospel. It's a wonderful thing to hear kids talk about when they have come to faith in Jesus Christ and the impact it had on their lives. It's an amazing thing. It's a joyful thing. And it's joy that lasts forever. So Paul says to them, I want you to first of all, and this is what we need to do, is recognize the danger. And notice that the expression he gives there in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. In other words, what he's going to talk about is really important. And, and because they, the reason they need a safeguard, it's a danger. It's a danger for Christians everywhere. And the second thing he says is beware of the dangerous. In verse 2. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the circumcision. You say, what in the world is he talking about? Well, this is going to be offensive because there's some of you here that love dogs so much to ever say anything bad about a dog is, is just a real violation of your, your peace. But let me tell you, in the first century, dogs were not pets. They were ravenous. They went here and there looking. They were scavengers, and they were scary, especially if they started running in packs. And he's, he's calling these people that are trying to undermine the gospel in the lives of the Philippians because he's calling them these names because in each of these names, and, and he uses what's called assonance. Do you remember what that is, assonance? If you, in, your, in your English literature class, you learned about assonance. That just means using the same sounds several times for emphasis. And that's what he does here. You can't say in English, but in Greek, the words that he uses, kunos, kakus, katatomen. That's what he's calling them. These are the names he's calling them, and they all have significance because what he's talking about is Judaizers. Now, what's a Judaizer? Well, if you get a concordance, you will never find it because it doesn't appear in the Bible. But the definition of a, a, a Judaizer does. What he says to them is that these people are trying to force... He's talking to Peter, the Apostle Peter. Now get this. The Apostle Peter is the first Judaizer, that is, he's acting like a Judaizer, that we're confronted with in the New Testament. A Judaizer was somebody who tried to force Gentile Christians to act like Jews. So what would that be? It would be to have them circumcised. It would be to have them start living under the law, the Mosaic law in which you have all of the, the rules about offering a sacrifice. Why would it be wrong to offer a sacrifice today? What's wrong with going and getting you a lamb and offering it up as a sacrifice? Because Christ has fulfilled that. And if we, are to, if we were to start offering up lambs in sacrifice, we would be saying, the sacrifice that Jesus gave is not enough. And the writer of Hebrews talks about it all the time. He confronts them over this. They're going back under the law and offering sacrifices. And he says, that is a detriment to your faith. You're undermining the gospel. And he tells this to Peter. 
And he says to Peter, look, you stopped living like a Jew because he had been having fellowship with Gentile Christians in Antioch, but now some Jewish men come from Jerusalem, and he knows they're not going to like the fact that he's having table fellowship with Gentiles, the uncircumcised. And so what Peter does, he pulls away from the Gentiles. It'd be like in an interracial church and the white people pulled away from the black people. That would be an absolute contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have an equal standing because our salvation is based upon the work of Christ. And so he confronts him and he says, why are you trying to force these Gentiles, these Gentile Christians, those who have come to faith in Christ in Antioch, why are you trying to force these Gentiles to become like Jews? And so we, it came to be called Judaizers, those Jews who tried to talk Christians into coming under the law. You want to really please God? That's what was going on in the book of Galatians. If these people were being told, you want to really please God? Then you need to come under the law. You need to start keeping Sabbath. You need to start tithing. You need to start living according to the rules of the law. Some of you may be wondering, why in the world don't you ever talk about tithing? Because tithing is one of the rules of the Old Covenant. You are not under the Old Covenant. We don't accept Old Covenant people here. (laughs) I'm being facetious. We would love to tell them the gospel. We live under the New Covenant. And there's, we're actually told how to give in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We're told how to give, and it's not a tithe. The word tithe is a debt. And what the difference is in the New Covenant, you're free to give from your heart what you desire to give. You don't have to give according to the rules. Remember Romans chapter 8 verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what does the rest of us says? It says, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And they, what is he talking about? What's the law of sin and death? Well, just go back to chapter 7, and you'll see it. It's the law, the Mosaic law. It turned out to be a lot of sin and death because their hearts were not circumcised, because their hearts weren't changed. And he says, now what the law does, it incites people to sin. And that's the reason we don't call Sunday the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. That's, that's Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is our Sabbath. What does Sabbath mean? It means to rest. What did Jesus tell you to do? He told you to rest in him. He told you to abide in him, which means to rest in him. He wants you to rest in him, not rest on the seventh day, which is Saturday, not Sunday. You are aware of that, aren't you, that in God's design, Sunday is the first day of the week. The reason we meet on Sundays is not because it's the Christian Sabbath. It's because this is the Lord's day. This is the Lord that Jesus, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we don't live under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. And what was going on here, the gospel was being undermined by people saying, you need to come under the law. You need to be circumcised. And you need to take on all of the, the lifestyle of the law. And Paul is angry. Because he doesn't want these new believers to be overwhelmed with this. And so he says to him, beware of the dogs. That is, these men are trying to undermine your faith and saying, believing in Jesus is not enough. Trusting in Christ is not enough. There's more you have to have. You have to start living like, in their case, living like Jews under the law. In our case, it's usually something slightly different. 
but it's adding anything to Christ. Just think of this. Anytime somebody says salvation is through Christ plus blah, 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 it doesn't matter what it is. It could be faith in, in Christ plus buying a motorcycle. That's a lie. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, it is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and rose again. And if you trust him, your sins are forgiven. And the alienation between you and God is removed. You've been reconciled to God. Now, you remember what was said to Abraham about Abraham in Galatians? That he believed God and was counted in for righteousness. And he became known as a friend of God. You know who you are? You're friends of God because you believed on Jesus. And God wants you to learn how to live like friends of God. Have you ever had a friend that you wanted to make a friend, but the, the person just didn't know how to treat you like a friend? And, and so you're trying, to, you're trying to influence them so that you could live as friends, so that you could relate to each other as friends. Well, what, what discipleship is about, it's teaching people how to live as a friend of God because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Living as a friend of God. And he says that we have to beware of these things. And what he means by this is look out. Acknowledge it. See it. Open your eyes and see what people are trying to do in undermining your faith and destroying the gospel. These are killjoys. The way you kill joy in the Christian's life is get him to look to something other than Christ as the basis of his acceptance with God. You've got to become a Baptist. Or you've got to become this or that. Or you have to have this experience, that experience. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the word of God. And so Paul is telling them, you watch out for these people who are trying to bring you under their sway. They want you to be influenced by them. They want you to come to depend upon them instead of just depending upon Christ. And then finally, he says one more thing he warns them about, he tells them about. He says, you have to rejoice because of who you really are. Do you know who you are? Could you give 10 ways, could you give just 10 ways in which God has blessed you through Christ? You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he begins to enumerate them, but he only mentions one. Just as, or according as, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's just the only, he only mentions one blessing. But there are hundreds of blessings that God has done in your life. I know a lot of people are looking for a second blessing or a third blessing or a hundredth blessing. Let me tell you, you have been, past tense. It's actually a perfect tense, which means you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing and you continue to have these blessings. I don't expect you to learn them all, but you know, you should learn 10. You're in Christ, for example, which means you have a righteous standing before God. It's like you're being clothed in Christ. You are as righteous as Christ is in the eyes of the Father. You are perfectly right in his sight. You are, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. That's how you're being sanctified. He's influencing you. He's living in you. You, have, you are a priest. Let me show you this so that you'll, you won't believe I'm just making this up. Look at, uh, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. You know how to get to 1 Peter? 
You go past Hebrews and then past James and there's 1 Peter right there. It's that easy. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and just listen to this. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2, this is Peter writing, and he says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He's talking about we're like the temple of God now. Christians are living stones that make up the temple of God, where God dwells. God dwells among his people. The Father, Son, and Spirit are in his people. And so he says, you are being built up as a spiritual house for the holy priesthood. God has made you into a holy priesthood. You've been anointed by the Spirit. You are a priest of God. You can offer up sacrifices to God, not bloody sacrifices, bloodless sacrifices, sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of obedience, sacrifices of love for one another. You offer up sacrifices because you're a priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on and on and on. Your, your blessings are amazing, what God has done for you. The next time you think, I need some new experience, I need new, some, some new blessing, come and talk to me because I'd like to explain to you, you have already received so much you, could, you, can't, even come to, you can't even come to name it. I'm not talking about name it and claim it. I'm talking about you can't even name it. You, you, can't even, you couldn't even make a list. The list would be so long you couldn't fit it on a, a sheet of paper front and back. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. You're a blessed people. And that's all a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Should the gospel make us happy? Should it produce joy in our hearts? Absolutely. And that's why it's called a gospel of happiness back in Hebrews 52. I mean in Isaiah 52. I actually thought Tony was reading from the wrong passage because when he put, I I turned to Psalm 52. And I thought, wow, he's reading the wrong chapter until he said, how lovely are the feet of him on the mountains. How lovely are the feet on the mountains who bring good news of great joy and happiness. Do you know that God wants you to have joy? Not because he wants you to be giddy and silly and all that. He wants you to have joy because he's given you the greatest gift in all the world. There's nothing that can compare with it. There's nothing that can compare with it. It's better than a new car. It's better than a Maserati. It's better than uh, a new house. It's better than a job that pays $5 million a year. It's better than being the best basketball player in the world. He's given you Christ. And there's nothing like Christ. I've been reading a book called uh, Secondhand Jesus. It's written by a guy who was a, a, he was a um, worship minister in a church, a very large church up in Colorado Springs. The pastor of the church was known all over the world. He was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He was very visible. And this guy had a job making a lot of money as a worship leader. It was a huge church, and so they paid everybody on the staff big money. Over, uh, there, was, there wasn't anybody that, didn't make, that made less than $100,000. That would be like the janitor. 
But what happened was, this guy was living a life of sin, this pastor. And this congregation didn't know it. It was a sin that he ranted against continually. But he had fallen into this gross immorality. And when it became public, the church crashed. And this guy wrote this book because he said he found out his understanding of who Jesus was was totally distorted. He thought Jesus was one who would make him prosperous. He thought Jesus was wonderful because he was going to make him rich and he was going to give him a career and he was going to let him have the best things in life. And then the crash came. And then he learned who Jesus was. He learned that Jesus was more valuable than any of those possessions that he had wanted so bad. He learned that the great gift you've been given is a person who has come to live in you and to be the, per- the closest person to you. There's nobody like Jesus. Have you ever noticed this, that you can tell God anything, that you can tell God things you couldn't tell the closest person to you in the world? Have you ever noticed that? That's because you've been, you, you have been reconciled to God and you can speak to him as a father. In fact, greater than any, any kind of son, father-son relationship in this world. There can be total transparency and honesty. You can call upon him in the worst of circumstances because of the gospel. And so what Paul wants them to do is he wants them to be aware of the danger and to be aware of who they really are. And so we could ask the question, well, who are we? Well, here's what this passage says, basically, is we are those who worship in the Spirit of God. We worship in or by the Spirit of God. What that means is the Holy Spirit, every single one of you, every Christian here, you worship in the power of the Spirit. Now, let me explain to what the word worship means. It's the word for functioning as a priest, offering up sacrifices to God. It's talking about the fact that now you have the ability and the assignment. God has given you the assignment. Remember Romans, Romans 12.1, I keep asking you to quote this. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as what? A living sacrifice. That's the, that's the work of a, of a priest. When you present your body to him as a living sacrifice, you're functioning as a priest. And the reason you can do that is you have the Holy Spirit. And you've been anointed with a spirit so that you can fulfill the function of a priest, a holy priesthood. You can offer up sacrifices to God. And you start with offering up your body. You give him yourself. You give him all that you are and all that you do. And then you offer up praise and worship and adoration as a priest. And he accepts it. He receives it. That's what's what's happened to us. So we are those who worship in the Spirit of God. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, remember Jesus, if you remember that Jesus kept telling his disciples, it's good for you if I go away, because if I, go, if I don't go away, the Spirit can't come, the Helper can't come. But I'm going to go away, and then I'm going to send the Spirit. And that's what he did on the day of Pentecost. He sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came and fell on them in a very dramatic way. And now we're told... Romans 8, verses 9 and 10, that every believer has the Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing. It's a blessing that will last for all eternity. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. Now, you may have been acting in total ignorance of that. You may have been not aware of that at all, but it's true. 
I want to bring you this good news. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You couldn't have believed on him without having the Spirit of God. And he wants you to offer up worship as a priest in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that something that you could actually call God's name? That you can say, Father? In fact, Paul says we could say, Abba, the way Jesus did in the garden when he was under such duress. And he said, Abba, if there's any way this, this cup can pass for me without me drinking it. And then he stopped. And he said, not my will will be done. Your will be done. I want your will be done, not mine. So you have this access to the Father, and you have the Holy Spirit, and so you can offer up worship. It means something. It means something. It has great significance for the fact that as you're riding, going down the freeway at 82 miles an hour, and you should be pulled over, but you, uh, you can... <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious. I know none of you drive like that except a couple people. <laughs> but you... you you can offer up praise to God, and he hears it. You can utter his name. You can say, Father, and the Father hears your voice, and he knows your voice. Do you know the voice of your children? You especially, did you know the voice of your children when they were small? You remember when they said your name? Or they called you mom or dad? Remember that? That's the way the Father is. He knows your voice. That's a privilege that's come to you because of the gospel. And Paul says, I don't want you to lose that. That'll kill your joy. The reason there are so many Christians who have no joy is because they're not believing and preaching the gospel to their own hearts. You have to tell yourself the truth. God has come after you. Do you remember it, we're told in Scripture that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you know what he was talking about? You. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, separated from God. And you ask me, why would he do that? And I say, I don't know. I don't know why he would do that. I'm mostly mystified by he would come after me. But I'm also mystified why he'd come after you. <laughs> why? Why would he say things like he does in Matthew 11? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He's talking about being spiritually weary and, and feeling like you're just lost. He says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You see, you have all of that because of the gospel. And so this is why Paul's so exercised over this. He doesn't want you. He doesn't want you to live as though you, you, have, you have not heard the gospel. He wants you to celebrate the gospel in your life. And so, fulfill your calling. I've already read you 1 Peter 2. You're a priest. Hebrews chapter 13. I might as well have you turn there because it's just right there. One book back from Peter. Or two books back, I'm sorry. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Look at this just a second. Hebrews 13 verse 14 right at the end of the book of Hebrews. He starts out this way, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking a city which is to come. We're looking for a home, and that home is in the presence of God. Now, it's going to actually be the new earth 
because the triune God is coming to the earth. It's going to be renewed and restored, and we're going to be have heaven on earth. He goes on, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. You know how to do that? Let me give you instruction. Uh, it'd probably be best to do this alone so that you don't scare anybody. But get alone and then just say, praise you, Father. I praise your name for what you've done for me. I praise your name because you cared about me and you sent your son to rescue me from my lostness and my alienation from you. I praise your name. And it's okay to get loud. I mean, he can hear every word you say even if you just think it. But it's okay to get loud if you get excited. He's not going to be embarrassed. So he says, offer up the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. When was the last time you thanked him for anything? When was the last time you got along and had a quiet time, and in your quiet time you began to tell God how grateful you are for all of the blessings in your life that he has given you? This gift of salvation, eternal life, the Holy Spirit, his own son. And he says, this is like offering up a sacrifice to God. It's a sacrifice of praise. And he says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing with with." For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This week, watching all these people down here every day serving these children in such a sacrificial way was a testimony to this right here. Sharing with, because with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. God loves it when you love people more than you love your stuff. When you actually want to give yourself this is what God's done for you. He's given himself to you. Do you know what that's? That's what grace means. Grace, charis, means God giving himself to you freely, without charge. He freely gives himself. And the wonderful thing is that God is a God of mercy, which means that he always gives you what you need instead of what you deserve. Do you ever do that to your kids? Do you ever say, you know what you deserve right now? God doesn't do that. He gives you what you need. Now, sometimes it is a spanking, uh, you know, because that's what you need. But he always gives you what you need because of his mercy. And he's given himself completely to you. So I just want to encourage you, don't, don't water down the gospel. Don't let anybody water down the gospel for you. You keep believing that God has received you wholeheartedly and completely simply because of what Christ has done in your place. And rejoice in that. Rejoice. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this glorious gift, the gospel, the good news. Especially we thank you for the ultimate gift of Lord Jesus Christ, which, about which this good news tells us. We thank you, Father, that you were so good to us that you sent messengers to us to tell us about your Son. And we receive this life that we now live, and we are grateful for it. We thank you for this, and we pray that we would rejoice in the gospel this week. I pray that some of us would have to be told to quieten down a little bit because we're getting so exuberant about the glory of God and the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.